You're listening to We Can Do This, a podcast by the National Consumers League. We talk through the issues of today with the figures who have paved the way for social and economic reforms and those carrying on the fight for an equitable tomorrow. Leading today's conversation is Sally Greenberg of the National Consumers League. We are delighted to be here today for this podcast from the National Consumers League, We Can Do This podcast. And our guests today are with the African American Tobacco Control Leadership Council. We have three of them, and I'm going to do proper introductions for each. But I think it's safe to say that the uh, experts that we have on the phone are responsible for leading the charge to get the Food and Drug Administration to finally, after years, agree to institute a ban on menthol cigarettes and flavored cigars. We feel very fortunate to have an opportunity to ask them how they did it, what steps along the way they took, some of the headwinds that they faced, and I will just kick things off. I am Sally Greenberg. I'm executive director of the National Consumers League, and this is our podcast, We Can Do This. So as I said in my opening remarks, we are here with the AATLC to discuss a really important milestone for the fight against big tobacco in the United States. The FDA, and it did indeed take a lawsuit, finally has agreed to begin a rulemaking to ban menthol cigarettes and flavored cigars, both of which were marketed to the black community very aggressively and deliberately by the tobacco industry. So congratulations to our guests on winning that lawsuit. And today we are going to be speaking with our experts. And let me begin by introducing Dr. Philip Gardner. Dr. Gardner is a public health activist, administrator, evaluator, and researcher, and has for the past 20 years lectured around the country on African-American health disparities generally and menthol smoking in the Black community in particular. Dr. Gardner is currently the co-chair of the African-American Tobacco Control Leadership Council, or AATCLC, which is a group of Black professionals that are dedicated to fighting the scourge of tobacco that impacts the African-American communities. He works out of California, but this is a national campaign. Carol Magruder is our next guest. She is experienced in the fields of tobacco control, transnational tobacco issues, public policy, social marketing, media advocacy, parent training, health education, and community capacity building. Ms. Magruder is a seasoned veteran of California's tobacco control experience and has served as an advisor in many capacities, most recently as a founding member and the other co-chair of the AATCLC. Our final guest is Charles Devon. He has over 30 years of experience working nationally and locally on HIV AIDS issues, and 15 years of experience working with chronic disease. He is the DC representative for the African American Tobacco Control Leadership Council. I met Charles recently at an event for Tobacco Free Kids, and I was tremendously impressed by his background and his knowledge of this issue and his 
grassroots organizing experience and community outreach and health promotion experience. So without further ado, I think I'm going to just jump into some questions for our guests. I'm going to direct the first question to Dr. Phil and to Carol. Will the two of you tell us about the African-American Tobacco Control Leadership Council and how you were launched? Well, that's that's a great question, um, Sally. And again, thank you for having us on. The AATCLC was founded in 2008. This grew out of the cutbacks that took place in California Tobacco Control Program were priority populations that used to get funding from the state. That funding was ended. That's one source of it. At the time, I was also working at the um, Tobacco-Related Disease Research Program at the University of California, Office of the President. And I was working on the research side. Carol was working on the um, community side. And our other um, compadre, Dr. Valerie Yerger, was also working at UCSF. And after being very frustrated with the cutbacks, we decided to pull ourselves together and decided to take up the fight. What's interesting and correspondingly, we should keep in mind that at the same time that we chose to move forward on this, The next year, in 2009, when Obama signed the Family Smoking Tobacco Control Act, it outlawed 13 um, different flavors and cigarettes, and the only one that was left in was menthol, and a number of us had been working on menthol for years. It was a direct slap in the face. The AATCLC made it our mission that if we did anything right, we were going to take this fight up. And from then on, starting with going back and talking to the Tobacco Product Scientific Advisory Committee of the FDA in 2010 and 2011, joining with um, the Public Health Law Center in 2013 for the citizen petition, and then getting the first menthol restrictions passed in the country in Chicago, but put a 500-foot barrier around schools. We made it our mission. I'll let Carol take it from there. There's a number of other things we need to say about it, but this is ultimately what ended up, we ended up suing the FDA in 2020 since they had um, essentially dropped the ball on this. Carol? Sure. So thank you again, Sally, for having us on. And and what I want to say about our being founded is that we started with no funding at all. You know, as Dr. Phil already mentioned, our party population groups, not only African-Americans, but the other party population groups, our leaderships, we weren't defunded, but the California Department of Public Health decided not to continue on in the direction that they were going in. And that lack of funding, and I'm not advocating not funding priority population groups, but because we didn't have any funding, we didn't have uh, a scope of work to do that oftentimes has little to do with our real issues, we really were able to focus on the needs of our community in a way that uh, was not controlled by a funding entity in terms of what you can say, what you can't say, and just having the demands of a a funded project. Um, So our leadership, our thinking, our reasoning, our strategies really came from a real organic place amongst our council, of which we have most of the original members. We've had a few people retire, but we've been meeting every month since 2008, out of a year, we're meeting 10, 11 months out of the year. And I'm just so proud that our council, that we've had the tenacity uh, to stick to this in the way that we have and have had a lot of bumps, a lot of pain, a lot of frustration. And we are to this point today in 2022 in such a positive place uh, where we're seeing the hard work that we have put in since our inception. 
Thank you for that really good background. And we will let Dr. Phil give us additional information. It's so interesting that you feel like you could do more when you didn't have a big entity controlling what you did and what you said. So true for so many of us in the nonprofit world. Can I ask, what is the history of the tobacco industry for our listeners deliberately marketing menthol cigarettes to Black Americans? Why did they do it? How did it catch on? And how do we know that they did it? I mean, I think that's the key question that is going on here. Menthol cigarettes come about in the 1920s. They're initially marketed in the 1930s to women as an alternative because women are just beginning to smoke. But what really jumps this thing off is um, after World War II and African-Americans coming back, moving from the South into the North, into segregated situations, different companies began to develop different products, different foodstuffs, different hair products. And in the case of cigarettes, a series of focus groups were held in the 19, late 1950s, early 1960s by Brown and Williamson. And what they found is that African-American smokers, the messages that were put forward in terms of menthol cigarettes resonated much more with them than it did with white smokers, to the point that Brown and Williamson, then in the early 60s, dumped over 90% of their advertising budget in the TV advertising. The second thing that went on, and, and most importantly, they began to use black images to put forward on television to sell these products, whether it was Willie Mays or Elston Howard. They began to use blackface. You have to remember that in the, in the early 1960s, we're still in the midst of the Jim Crow era, and black folks can't even get jobs. They can't even get served at counters. But here we have African-Americans appearing in TV commercials promoting these menthol cigarettes. They began to understand that if they could influence key players, key people within the black community, that, that this would spread. This is the take-home message in terms of this. In the 1950s, only less than 5% of African Americans smoked menthol cigarettes. By 1968, that had almost tripled to 14%. By 1976, that had tripled again to 42%. By the early 2000s, it was over 80% of African-Americans were smoking menthol cigarettes. And today, some 85% of African-American adults and 93% of African-American youth who smoke, smoke menthol cigarettes. This is because these products were pushed down our throat. The short story is not only did they do that, they're cheaper in our community, they're more advertising in our community, they're more promotion in our community, and I guess what is most problematic is that money is being poured into our community, into our black organizations by the tobacco industry, either buying their silence or buying their open support, which I'm sure we will talk about later. But this is how menthol became a black cigarette. It was pushed down our throat. Right. And and let me add in that how we know so much about what the industry did and what they do is because their own internal documents have been uh, were released uh, because of litigation over these years. And at one point, Dr. Stan Glantz out of UCSF, he got a whistleblower, just sent him some documents. And at the time, there was a new invention called the Internet. <laughs> And he put those documents on the internet uh, and there were some lawsuits at UCSF by the industry at the time because they were trying to block saying, I think that the documents were, you know, were like stolen goods or something. So he, he put those documents out on the internet, which was new, and then they were out there forever. And then over time, UCSF has become one of the repositories of the tobacco industry documents. And you can get online now and you can 
put in their index. You can search names, you can search people, you can search places. And so some of the research that was done by Dr. Valerie Yerger, who's one of our council members and a UCSF professor, Dr. Ruth Malone, actually called the industry documents and uh, such seminal papers as Smoking with the Enemy, which documented how the industry, the tobacco industry, just pervasively and racistly targeted every single African-American organization in this country. And then Racialized Geography, which documented the menthol programs, the urban programs that all of the major tobacco industries had for black people, where they literally came and gave physically gave out free cigarettes to children um, as young as nine years old, like Marie Evans in Boston, who was dead at 54, like the famous comedian Dave Chappelle, who was given free menthol cigarettes in the Washington, D.C. metro station at the age of 14. And that began his lifelong addiction to these products. So it's, you know, it's well documented. And the documentation is from them, from the tobacco industry, their reports, their strategy sessions, and, and that anyone can get online and see these documents now. Very well said, Carol. Yeah, that's really shocking, shocking revelations. I guess we shouldn't be surprised that corporate America will will market to various groups very cynically and without regard to their health or their welfare. But this sort of long and slow and very pointed effort and campaign to addict African-Americans with menthol cigarettes in the way that you're describing is very upsetting, I think, to most people who think, oh, it's just by way of accident that African-Americans happen to like menthol cigarettes more than regular cigarettes. On that point, and Charles, I want to get to you too, to talk a little bit about the some of the pushback that we've seen, because we know that a lot of groups have received money from the tobacco industry in the Washington area. A lot of them are based here. But before we do that, let me ask the question, and just to set some baseline for our, our listeners, does the African-American community suffer a higher incidence of tobacco-related illness as a result of marketing of menthol and flavored tobacco products? And at this moment in time, what is the percentage, if we know it, of African-Americans who smoke tobacco products or use tobacco products? Yeah, no, this is, unfortunately, this is reminds me, I, the short story is this, I was sitting at my desk at the University of California Office of the President in 1998, reading the Surgeon General's report. And it was the first Surgeon General's report that looked at racial disparities. And it was essentially page after page and chart after chart showing that African-Americans were dying disproportionately of lung cancer, of heart attacks, of um, cerebrovascular disease, stroke. And I'm going, well, what's going on here? And unfortunately, this has remained true that tobacco-related diseases that I just mentioned disproportionately affect African-Americans. African-Americans die disproportionately from lung cancer, from heart attacks, and from stroke. A lot of that has to do with the lack of health care services that are provided. It's unfortunate that we have data that shows that African-Americans start smoking later in life and actually quit earlier, but die disproportionately from this disease. This has been going on for literally decades. This is why getting menthol out of cigarettes, the main attraction for in the black community, could go a long way towards saving black lives. So there's no question that this is the main killer of black folks. To use Carol's uh, analogy, together, you know, car accidents, homicides, 
suicide, all the other causes of death don't even add up nearly close to the tens of thousands of lives that are lost yearly from the use of um, tobacco products, particularly menthol cigarettes. And, and Sally, um, this is Charles. Again, thanks for having us on. And I just kind of want to piggyback on what Dr. Gardner said. You know, we, we talk a lot about smoking, but secondhand exposure also plays a, a big part of in the work that we do, too, because we know that people who are exposed to secondhand exposure can also have heart disease, lung disease, COPD, other chronic conditions as a result of someone else smoking. But we also know that it also is one of the leading causes of youth asthma, and we see that a lot in the Black community. So I just wanted to add that as well. Yes, and and let me add on further to what Charles said, is that in our communities, we have such a heavy, toxic environmental burden. So when you add in the cigarettes, secondhand smoke, when, you know, the freeways were, were used to, to kill Black neighborhoods in this country. Where I grew up in Bayview, we have the wastewater, which uh, cleans all the water now. It's going to clean all the water for the whole Bay Area. So those fumes are, are, are coming into our community every day. In West Oakland, they have the port there. So they have the diesel trucks coming through. So when you add in what's also the effect of environmental racism, along with this pernicious and pervasive targeting and, and seeding of these addictive products in our communities, the compounding of that on our health is just immeasurable. And people need to think of it in that way as well. And we see a lot of that too, Sally, right here, just in D.C. alone, but I'm sure in a lot of other places, when you're talking about wards seven and eight that are hit largely because of, of where they're located, you know, in Ward 7, we're, we're not far from what used to be the Pepco plant, you know what I mean? That used to give out a lot of fumes. A lot of our subways are overground, right? So we get exposed to a lot of carbon monoxide that way. Mm-hmm. Let me return to the issue of how you made this happen in the years that you worked so hard to get the FDA to act, and they just wouldn't get off the dime. You were finally able, by bringing a lawsuit, to compel the agency to do what it should have done a decade ago, to act on menthol and flavored tobacco. Can you walk us through how that happened, who brought the lawsuit, and how we got this really incredible result finally and why it took so long. Sure. Let me start off with a funny story. And then I'm going to, Dr. Phil can fill in all the details that he's so much better at. But, you know, initially when the act was signed, we are, so we tuned in to the webinar or the showing of the first meeting. And we just thought, you know, the room would be full. We're in California. We're so far away from everything. We thought the room would be full. You know, we were so excited. First of all, we were very disappointed that menthol was, was exempted, but there was the amendment that was added at the last minute that mandated that the FDA do something about menthol. So it had to, it was at the top of their to-do list for TIPSAC as they went forward with what they were going to do. So we tune in, you know, the room is empty. Uh, We can't believe it. And we started coming back to those meetings, myself, Dr. Phil, Dr. Val was actually commissioned to write some papers by the FDA about what the industry knew about menthol. And so we're going back, you know, on our own dime uh, to provide testimony, to try to spur things on. And we initially were doing, you know, we had people writing letters, we're engaging our groups about what's happening. And at one point we were so frustrated, we were going to have civil disobedience before President Obama got out of office to draw attention to our plight. And so we're Bay Area people, 
uh, very much involved in, in AIDS in the beginning when nothing was being done by the federal government. And we were kind of looking at ACT UP, if people remember that group, where they just started acting up all over the country to call attention to the fact that our government was not doing anything about AIDS. So Dr. Phil and I, and you know, luckily because we're getting old now, but we were going to go to D.C. And, do, and lay in the street or do something. Del Monte Jefferson, who was the head of uh, NAPTN at the time that's morphed into our Center for Black Health and Equity, he was going to be the one to bail us out and we had Sharon Eubanks, who was the lead uh, prosecutor with the Department of Justice, so, and Joel Lester. So we had folks kind of lining up on what we were going to do. And luckily, Chicago came on, on board, and they were the first city to do something, just creating a buffer zone and, and not having mentholated products sold within a 500-foot radius of schools. So that action, and then we got involved in that, that, that prevented us from having to you know, do some civil disobedience to really call attention to what we're doing. And Chicago, you know, they litigated it and that opened up the floodgates for cities to see that they could also enact local legislation to protect their people. And then, Dr. Phil, you can fill in the other details, please. You mentioned the President Obama was in the White House. So are we talking about 2010? Are we talking about, give us some timelines so we can put this into context. Let me fill in, because I remember the um, what Carol was talking about. After we had gone back to Washington in 2010 and 2011, and they say they're going to write a report and all of this, we got very frustrated. And as Carol pointed out, we were sitting down having lunch at a meeting in early 2013, and we're discussing what Carol just talked about, doing civil disobedience to get attention for the menthol issue. And I won't go into the specific details, but we got word that Chicago was thinking of enacting a flavors restriction that would include menthol. And we wanted to take it the way that California did, that we've been doing it, you know, you do it city by city by city by city, and then it becomes a state law. And so California has some of the leading um, tobacco control laws in the United States, and a lot of that came based on local level. And so we said, well, let's not necessarily do the civil disobedience. Let's see what we can do in Chicago. And we were able to win the battle in Chicago in December of 2013. That launched a series of different events. You should be aware that by 2016, places in Minnesota, Minneapolis, and St. Paul began to take up this issue. While they left open the possibility that you could buy menthol in certain um, places, you couldn't buy it in all places. There began to be things like that. Oakland took up a um, similar thing in 2017. All menthol products were excluded except at um, adult-only venues. It wasn't until 2018 in San Francisco that we got the first citywide restrictions on the sale of menthol and all flavored tobacco products. And of course, the tobacco industry tried to turn that over with a referendum, which we successfully fought back. And, and we're facing the same thing here in California on terms of SB 793, which we got passed in the summer of 2020. The tobacco industry spent another $20 million and got over 600,000 signatures to put it on a referendum, to put it on the ballot, essentially on the ballot in November this year. I'm saying all this to say, to get to your question, Sally, that as we're doing this, we realize, and want to shout out to Chris Leong and um, Pollock um, LLC, we are approached by a law center to say, well, why don't we sue them? And we had a whole discussion about how do you sue the tobacco industry? If it's a class action suit, 
class action suits generally takes millions of dollars to do and takes, unfortunately, sometimes decades or many, many years. But this was going to be a, um, an administrative lawsuit that demanding that they take action on menthol. We got partners to agree with us. We got the Action on Smoking and Health, the American Medical Association, and the National Medical Association. And we essentially took these bad boys to court. And finally, as you pointed out, Sally, it was finally on April 28th of this year that the FDA began the rulemaking process. Now, let me say that's the strength of this thing. People should be aware that menthol cigarettes and flavored cigars are still on the market. And there's a process that we're going through. So I want to encourage people that are listening to this, that are working at the local and state level to keep up those fights, because we know the tobacco industry is going to throw all of its might this way. Look at it this way. Menthol cigarettes make up about 35 to 36 percent of the total United States cigarette market. And the last time I looked in 2018, I believe that market was somewhere in the neighborhood of $220 billion. 35% of that is $70 billion. This is no way this fight is going to wake soon. We want to encourage people to um, actually get involved in this. I could, I'm, I'm going to stop because the, there's a lot of detail that needs to be brought up. I'm also thinking about what happened here in Washington, D.C. And Charles, will you tell us about that victory that you won over the last year? And there was a lot of lobbying and a lot of uh, horse trading that went on within our own city council here and people who should have been on the right side who ended up voting the wrong way. So tell us about some of that drama that happened here and congratulations on getting that done here in the nation's capital. Yep. Sure. Thanks, Sally. Yep. That's a, that was a big step for us. I think, you know, we did run into a lot of opposition. We actually lobbied hard for this to be passed in the D.C. Council. And the majority of the D.C. Council members did vote to ban flavored tobacco in the District of Columbia. There were a few, maybe three, two or three that did not. And, you know, we did have hearings where a lot of supporters, a lot of um, D.C. advocates and tobacco control advocates showed up and, and presented facts and presented research that the council could use to get this ban passed. And so once it was passed, we were very excited. And then it had to go through another process where, you know, any law that is passed in, in the District of Columbia and has funding attached, that funding has to, it won't pass in, until that funding is filed. So the mayor was able to, we, we definitely thank the mayor for including it in her budget going forward in the 2023 budget. So that passed. And as of, I think just yesterday, they did the final vote and, and it is now law in the District of Columbia. Congratulations. I'm happy to hear it as a, as a resident of the District of Columbia, but I must admit there were certain members of the city council who voted, who said they would vote one way and ended up flipping. And hopefully they will have to pay at the ballot box for their failure to take a strong stand on this. Yeah, just, I'm sorry, just real quickly. And we do know that the tobacco company got to those folks that did vote against the ban. They got to them, you know, right at the, uh, at, at the 11th hour. And then that's when the, their decisions were switched. Yeah. And, you know, I would like to jump into that. And I want to get Dr. Phil and Carol and you, Charles, on this, because this goes to the question of the folks within the community who say, if you ban menthol and flavored cigarettes, that will be used to discriminate against African-Americans. So my question is, what do you say to them? 
Can you explain how the ban will work? And if you think this will create the threats of, oh, this is going to create tension with the police and give police an excuse to further harass our community? Well, there are three basic arguments that are being made um, by the black spokespersons for um, the tobacco industry. One is that this is um, our cigarette and that it would be racist on our part to take our cigarette away from us. We would be being discriminatory. And the short answer to that is, who is the racist here? Is it the tobacco industry or is it the tobacco control advocates? Is it the industry that has pushed this product down our throat for years, that have sold it, that has given it away to us, that have have vans traveling around in our community playing our music and giving away free samples? Who is the racist here? So let's let's be done with that. The other argument that's going to lead to the criminalization of young black people Punchline here is that none of the laws that have been passed, nor the FDA legislation that is pending, says anything about possession. This is not, it's not against the law to possess, smoke, or use menthol cigarettes. What's being stopped is the production of them, the distribution of them, and the selling of them. This does not give the police the right to pull anybody over and say, are you smoking a menthol cigarette? If you look at the the hundreds of laws that have been passed around the country that have to do with restricting the sale of menthol, not one person has been arrested for possession of a menthol cigarette. Not one person has even been pulled over for possession of a menthol cigarette. They're conflating the police violence that's gone on in our community from the police with this public health measure. The killing of George Floyd the killing of, um, of other folks in, in our community by the police that is not about cigarettes. It's about police brutality. The laws that is on the books now in local areas and the law that is being proposed by the FDA says explicitly, and you, we should look at, people should look at the law, it says explicitly that this law is, is not to be used for enforcement by local authorities for the possession, use, or purchase of these products. It's just a period there. And then the last thing, they use the term black market. I will use the term illicit market. They'll say this will give rise to an illicit market. In the numerous cities around the country where this has been implemented, no illicit market has arisen, period. In Canada, where the whole of Canada has restricted, um, forbidden the sale of menthol-flavored cigarettes, no illicit market has arisen there. And moreover, in the European Union, which in 2020 also um, restricted the sale of mentholated products, no illicit market has arisen there. I would even take it a step further. It says in the rule, and I've read the rule, all 145 pages, 47 pages of it, that the tobacco industry can still produce menthol cigarettes here in its plants in the United States for export. They can't use it in the United States, but they can export it. I think one thing that ATCLC is saying to the FDA is they should stop the production of menthol across the board, period. So those are the three main arguments. Those are our response to those arguments. 
we might want to talk about who's actually making those arguments at some point, what should be done about those people. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I want to add in that, you know, while we're waiting for the FDA to move, we are still encouraging cities, counties, and states to enact their legislation and get just get ahead of what's going to happen with the FDA, because we know that there will be still lots of tobacco industry interference. June 1st, Los Angeles became the largest city to adopt a law to take mentholated and flavored tobacco products off the market with a 12-0 vote by the city council. And as a, I was raised halfway between Los Angeles and San Francisco and experienced and witnessed the, the extreme violence and police brutality that Los Angeles is known for. And so to have such a strong vote in the city of Los Angeles was so gratifying to me personally because I, you know, witnessed the Watts riots, uh, the aftermath of Rodney King, um, all of these issues. And so that that we are taking a stand to get the de- deadliest profiler of black men, which is the tobacco industry and the deadliest killer of black and brown people to get it off the market and to do what it takes to make that happen. And that we know that passing laws is the beginning, not the end. And so there are a lot of folks who, you know, when the laws pass, that's it. It's the beginning for us, the true beginning of getting services for our people, of working on the demand side, because there are two parts to this equation. And so we need to really educate people and to provide the services to get them off of this addictive and deadly product. And what do you say to those who would argue, look, it's a choice. It's free choice. If you want to smoke cigarettes, you should be able to smoke cigarettes. And you're telling people what they can and can't do. I mean, let's be let's be clear. And unfortunately, as a public health doctor, this question comes up all the time to me. The majority of people who start smoking cigarettes start in their teens, in their early teens, mid-teens. So by the time their brain isn't fully developed, they have become addicted. And by the time the question arises about should they quit and they say it's a choice, they didn't make the choice in the first place. They got addicted in the first place, and now they're being asked to make a choice. So this isn't about individual rights. I'll say, so I I really want to emphasize that. I'll say a second thing. We have laws on the books all around the country that save lives that um, restrict individual freedom. For example, you know, we ask people to wear seatbelts. It's not only to protect yourself, it's to protect others. These are not minor, minor things. So Getting people to see this as a public health issue is very important. We want to restrict your rights. Yeah, we want to save your lives. That's what we want to do. And in taking that personal choice example a little bit further, especially with seatbelts, them leaving menthol on the market in the first place with the Tobacco Control Act in effect was, you know, we're passing a seatbelt law, but black people, if you feel like we're in a seatbelt, you know, you can, but if you don't want to, it's okay. That's your choice. There are times when the government should intervene. And so we have this product that got on the market that kills half of the people that use it. And so it's about safety. It's about community norms around these stores in the communities, you know, the stores, the proliferation of these stores that kill us in in African-American and brown communities that you don't see in other places. You know, when I go to Marin, there are four juice bars. And when I go to the neighborhood where I grew up, there are four liquor stores. That's the environment that our children, the community norms that our children are seeing. And that's part of changing the norms and what people are exposed to when they think they're making a quote unquote free choice. 
Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with what Dr. Phil and Carol just said. You know, I think every uh, Black American that smokes should be given the information, you know, on how menthol came to be in the first place, a little bit about what Carol was talking about earlier. And that includes um, what tobacco does to the body, what's in cigarettes, the fact that we once, again, have been preyed upon by the tobacco companies and the tobacco industry, and then let them draw their own conclusion, but give them the information, give them the facts, give them that education that they need. And that also, you know, we know that smoking is an addiction. And, and, and Dr. Phil stressed that addiction. And once you're in that addiction, it's hard to really say that one way or the other that you want to stop until you actually come out of it. So getting folks to that next step, you know, we rely a lot on the stages of change, moving people from one place to the other. I want to get all the arguments out there because, you know, we're all going to hear them and we're going to hear them in D.C. We're going to hear them around the country. And I work a lot on healthcare, and I work a lot with the FDA. And I want to make sure that that our listeners at the National Consumers League have all of that information and your very cogent and strong arguments to counter all of these issues that are going to be raised. Let's find out from you all what you think are the next steps, the countersuits against the FDA. How's the AATCLA going to respond to those? The FDA is going to have to defend their uh, rulemaking. And so let me let me ask you guys, will it go to let, the Supreme Court? Let me give Court, you the, the you layout think? right now, and I'll let my colleagues talk about what else can be done. Where we are right now is the FDA has opened up a comment period that is supposed to end on July 5th. Of course, the tobacco industry has already put in numerous requests to extend the comment period. This is a common tactic of theirs to draw out this whole process. We've sent in a number of requests, and I know the tobacco industry has sent in a number of requests. The punchline of this is even... If it does get extended, each time we've tried this, they've extended the period, meaning that this will go on for a number of months. Once it goes and the comments go in, then it goes upstairs to the Office on Management and Budget. And there it will sit for a number of months where they have the ability to edit any rule that comes forward or any suggestions that come forward directly from the um yeah, this, this is not a minor point. Let me tell you, in 2016, when the um, FDA deemed all other tobacco products under its rubric, because in the 2009 only dealt with cigarettes, in 2016 they had e-cigarettes, they had cigars, they had little cigars and, and, and everything else. There was 12, 16 pages that argued that flavor should be taken out of all these products. It went upstairs to the OMB, and the OMB redlined all 16 pages of that. So that process is still to be gone through. When it finally comes back down for the um, OMB, there will be a final comment period, which the tobacco industry will argue to extend that even further. And when that extension continues, and if a positive rule is passed, they will sue. And they will sue in probably in more than one jurisdiction on more than one topic. So I just want people to be aware we the fight hasn't ended. There's no end. This is the beginning of the end, but nowhere near the end. Go back to the point that was made earlier by Carol. I want to encourage people at the local and state level to keep up the fight around this. We must keep up the fight around this. We're a long way from um, this being over. Let me ask, has the response to your work within the communities that you live and work in been largely positive? Can you tell us something about that? 
So, so I'll, we've had a sea change with our community in terms of this issue. You know, it's amazing because once we started talking about menthol, the history, you could see people's, their eyes would just light up because they understood that they lived it. They went to the cool jazz festival, you know, with Marvin Gaye at the Oakland Coliseum 35 years ago, they begin to really see it in a different way. And then we've had the wonderful, the wonderful embracing of this issue from some very prominent African-American leadership organizations. One of the first ones being the Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. They've had two national resolutions, the, the first one urging the FDA to take action. Um, and that opened the doors to the National Association for Children of Colored People have a national resolution that was passed in 2016. We have the National Medical Association that passed a resolution, which is our nation's African-American doctors, uh, the black nurses. So we, we're having more and more national leadership groups really study this, understand it, and they are able to get behind it and to stand with us with the changes that need to happen in our community to make this uh, happen, first of all, and to be successful in making these changes. Well, that's great. What What do you do about people like an Al Sharpton? I don't know if he's still talking about this being a bad thing, but do you have that 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 national figure, that spokesperson who can counter with all those really strong persuasive arguments that you you all provided about why this is not racism and why, in fact, it's quite the opposite? Is there somebody who has that kind of authority and following? That's a good. That's a great point. It's unfortunate that Al Sharpton has chosen to take money from the tobacco industry, and he has for years. And while he's done some excellent work around police violence and the tax on black people, tax on the black community overall, the taking of money from the tobacco industry just sullies that completely. We've had a number of people speak up. Carol has actually pointed out that a number of black lawmakers have spoken out about it. We're encouraged, we're prepared to sit down and talk with Al Sharpton and other people in NAN if they're um, prepared to sit down and talk with us about it. But let's be clear that the message that Black people are dying disproportionately from tobacco-related diseases and the main vector into our community for that disease are menthol cigarettes and flavored little cigars. And people should not be taking money from that industry at all should be the take-home message as it relates to that. According to the CDC, this is a question that came up from within our organization. There's issues with hookah. What is it called? Hookah? Shisha sales. Yeah. Do you all look at those? Do you see those as different issues? And I think, Carol, what you said is you see those, those shops in primarily black and brown communities. Is that part of this discussion or is that outside the framework of what we're trying to get the FDA or what the FDA has said they're going to do and all the wonderful work you all have done in cities around the country? It's not formally a part of this, but it's more and more a part of the discussion because the hookah shops are so pervasive now in the African-American community. And hookah actually successfully got an exemption from the California state law that we will be voting on in November. And they make this, a similar cultural argument that this is part of the Mediterranean culture, the Arab culture, which it is absolutely not. Um, hookah is a big business. And we know that 
people shift to, you know, the tobacco is like water. It's, it seeks to the lowest elevation. And so we are going to be taking hookah on more and more. We're trying to get the menthol straight. But hookah is a big issue and it's an international issue. It's also huge in South Africa amongst our people. So you will be hearing more about hookah. I just want to say one thing that we're talking about. The National Newspaper Publishers Association, which is our black press uh, with Ben Chavis, they take money from Reynolds American from Newport Cigarettes. And so, you know, your press is supposed to be a neutral entity and the defender of our people. And our black press really came about to free us from slavery. And then later on, Jim Crow segregation. So when our when our papers take money from the industry, it's part of that smoking with the in- industry strategy that the tobacco industry uses. And I was just trying to get the date of when the NNPA filed an amicus brief when the tobacco industry were federally adjudicated racketeers, and they listed all of the research that Dr. Gardner has done, that Dr. Yerger has done, talking about this targeting of the black community by the tobacco industry. Yet now they're taking money from Reynolds American Newport Cigarettes personally and as an organization. And so when we want to call them, we want to call them out about that because our papers need to be reporting the news and the information to our people. And the news and the information is that tobacco kills more black people than everything else combined. And that our, our, our media cannot be in bed with the industry that is making that happen. And, and do you see this come out in the editorial, the opinion pages, op-eds or anything, or are they taking the money? Yes, you are seeing a, an impact. Yes, yes. You will see it. And so the papers are owned independently by different, basically publishing families. So even though you might see, um, you'll see, depending like here in Oakland and San Francisco, there's strong support for taking these products off the market. And so even though you might see an advertisement from the industry, there's still the editorial and the other reporting is supporting taking these products off the market. But depending on where the newspaper is, then you're going to see or not see, you know, the the reporting of the issues. Uh, Ben Chavis recently, he did some op-ed on prostate cancer, but he doesn't mention tobacco and, and the effect that smoking has on any type of cancer on your body's ability to heal. So we see it in ways that are subtle and in ways that are just more overt and in your face that they're in bed with the industry. Not to put too sharp a point on it, Ben Chavis has got his editorial that came out in April, um, FDA smoking while black and brown in America specifically calls for um, allowing these products to stay in the black community. But let me return to your, your initial question about hookah. It's unfortunate that in the, in, in the Los Angeles um, recent major victory and in San Diego and in other places, hookah has been getting an exemption. And this exemption is essentially going to push people who want to use flavored tobacco products to begin to use hookah. It's a tactic of the tobacco industry. This is not about any cultural significance. You know, we've been in meetings where people have come in and said, this is a thousand year old tradition in the Middle East. And the problem is, is that tobacco products, which are native to um, America, didn't get transported even to Britain until 400 years ago and make their way into the Middle East until three to 400 years ago and didn't become a staple. And unfortunately, the majority of people, just like in the United States, that die in the Middle East, regardless of the country, divide, die of tobacco-related diseases. So 
the whole idea that this is somehow some something good culturally is just 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 not the case. And once we pass, hopefully, 793 here in California, we're going to turn around and work with a number of different locales to restrict the sale of um, flavored hookah also. Will you explain 793? What does it do? 793, it would prohibit the sale and distribution of menthol cigarettes, all other flavored tobacco products, with the exception of hookah, loose leaf tobacco, and premium cigars. Those are the three exemptions. We're encouraging people to still vote for it and that be aware that at the local level, you can still take local ordinances that are stronger. You have to look at what's going on at the state level in California as not the ceiling, but the floor, and that we can actually come up with stronger legislation. You can't do that in in San Francisco and in, in a number of other cities don't have that exemption. So this fight is a long way from over. Getting flavored tobacco out of our communities and out of our lives is going to be a fight, a fight for our lives. We've got time for one, one more question. What do you want folks to who are on your side and want to be supportive of this really remarkable campaign and this series of remarkable victories that you've had? What is the best way for communities to support your work. Join the fight at the local level. Your health departments are involved in this. Um, the local NAACPs are involved in this. The local um, chapters of the Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Inc. are involved in this. The National Medical Association chapters are involved in this. Chapters of the AMA are involved in this. Oh. And and what we'd like people to do is to go to our website, which is savingblacklives.org, and to sign up and to be part of on our newsletter. You will get all of our e-blasts, and we will actually have um, resources dedicated to what people can specifically do about the FDA sample letters. Um, we're actually going to be hijacking some of our partners who are doing this work, like Public Health Law Center and other groups that really are into the, the legal side of this. Um, but sign up, please go to our website and sign up and then you will get our e-blast and you will you will be a part of this fight and you will see you know what you can do. We're also having a conference in September <laughs> of this year, September 28th and in Washington, D.C. And that is on our website as well. The information about the conference and finishing the fight and it will give everybody their their marching orders uh, to get this job done. We will be there. We will sign up and register and we will be there and. And uh, I just want to thank you, uh, Dr. Phil and Carol and Charles, for a really informative uh, hour, but also just to take our hats off to you for this incredible victory that you have won So after so many years of fighting and raising awareness. And uh, you all, in, in my mind, deserve the Nobel Peace Prize, but I'm not in charge. So keep up the great work. And we are, the National Consumers League has a long history of working on healthcare issues and fighting uh, the tobacco industry. And we are very pleased to uh, have this new and, and hopefully very promising relationship. Thanks for listening to We Can Do This, a production of the National Consumers League. We Can Do This is a member of the District Productive. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred podcast app. And hey, tell your friends about us. We love feedback, so give us a rating or review. You can also talk to us through the National Consumers League's Facebook page 
or on Twitter at NCL underscore tweets. That's NCL underscore tweets. Still can't get enough? Visit nclnet.org. That's N-C-L-N-E-T dot O-R-G to learn about our rich history in fighting for consumers and workers' rights, our current leadership, our education and advocacy programs, and to discover ways for you to make a difference in the world. Remember, we can do this. (laughs) 